Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. We're here with Joey Myers. We're at White Cloud Vineyard in Carlton. It's March 7th, 2023. Joey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, why wine or why grapes? Oh man, well, um, I was uh, raised in the business. So my, my family um, has been involved with uh, the wine business, the Oregon wine business, really since the beginning. Um, our, we are close family friends with, uh, with the Letts of Irie Vineyards and my dad it was his first um, job in in wine and grapes back in I think 1979. Um, so, and my folks actually met at Irie Vineyards. My mom was working um, with one of their sons in an educational capacity, um, and so yeah, so we're kind of tied in in that way. Um, yeah, so I, I my dad's been running working in the nursery business since the 80s. Um, and so that was kind of my first work was just packing vines and shoveling sawdust and, and, uh, um, yeah, I think I really got, really realized it was something that interested me in uh, high school. Um, I worked on weekends and, and, and during the summers, um, for our vineyard management company, um, working in the field, running equipment, um. So that was when I really kind of realized this is something that, um, yeah, could could have a future. And, and obviously that was when the Oregon wine industry was really kind of exploding, um, you know, right in the late 90s. Um, so there was just seemed to be a lot of promise. And, and so I kind of decided that it was something I was going to uh, pursue. So when you decided to pursue it, were you thinking in terms of sort of staying in the family business? Were you thinking of being a winemaker? Were you just thinking of kind of getting into it and seeing what, what sounded good? Well, um, my, uh, my mom's family is also really um, deep in the agriculture history of Yamhill County. Um, they've, we've been farming since the 1880s here. And so I was really kind of... Uh, deeply involved or in, enveloped in that kind of culture from a very young age. Um, something I really appreciate and, and love a lot. Um, so, you know, there was, it wasn't just one thing. It was, it was very much just like enjoying the work, enjoying the kind of seasonal aspect of it um, and the challenge, the seasonal challenge of it. So after high school, what did you do next? Um, so I looked... Uh, Oregon State had not really at that point established a really good viticulture program. So I, I had looked into kind of studying horticulture there, um, but I re it just really wasn't that attractive to me. Um, I did look at going um, to Davis or Cal Poly or Fresno State, um, but just wasn't really prepared to move that far away from my family. Like I've always been a really close with a lot of, with my family and have a really big family. So, um, and at that point in time, um, Greg Jones, uh, was 
really kind of his career was taking off with uh, climate, the climatology work he was doing at Southern Oregon in um, Ashland, Southern Oregon University. And um, my dad knew Greg through his dad, Earl Jones at Abacella. And so, um, and I also have an aunt and uncle that, that I, I'm really close with down in uh, the Medford, Ashland area. So I was familiar with the area. And you know, it's like a afternoon drive home. So, um, so yeah, I, I decided that that was a good fit for me. And, and um, you know, the practical, from a really early age, I kind of realized and understood uh, that, you know, a uh, career in the, in the wine business, especially in Oregon, didn't necessarily, uh, you know, require uh, a degree. Um, a lot of the people that we worked with had philosophy and English degrees or, you know, it, it was, and so um, I decided to study geography, which is, you know, a really um, basic, you know, kind of the, f the first uh, study, if you, you know, if you will. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the kind of the combination of being able to go and work with somebody like Greg who understands wine and grape from a global standpoint um, was really attractive and to go into a small school where I could work with, very closely with him uh, was really attractive and so yeah so that's kind of where I where I headed. What was your experience like there and, and what did you think of the the wine industry in that part of the state? Uh, you know in those days I so I went to I went down there in 2002 um, and you know, there was there, by that point there was some really well-established uh, vineyards um, in that area, um, and actually there was in the time when I was in school there, there was some several some really big plantings going on down there, and so um, I mean, working with Greg was 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 fantastic. He was him and I worked from the moment we met. I came in there and, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he's like okay let's do it and so um, I maxed out my all my internship credits and kind of extracurricular stuff I worked with him on on a lot of some really neat projects that we can we can talk about later but but um, you know a lot my studies were pretty were pretty general just general geography and and I, I focused a lot on uh, geology and soils and and uh, um, you know a lot of those kind of basic uh, physical geographical kind of studies um, and then obviously um, I took a lot of, of climate stuff climate science um, working with Greg so um, yeah and so at that point in time I really was still um, learning about viticultural techniques you know I kind of understood the basics I guess just from working in it um, and so, and it was interesting to, to see what was going on down there, but I still had a really basic understanding of what was, you know, what was important, I guess. More from a cultural aspect, as far as viticulture, you know, like the work that you did, I was pretty well versed in that by that point, but, you know, I hadn't had any in, uh, experience with irrigation or, or, you know, some of the soils down there in Southern Oregon are really pretty extreme so um, you're kind of getting into a different realm of challenge uh, 
versus the Dundee Hills or, or, you know, some of the places that I had experienced farming. Mm -hmm. So after, well, actually, before we move on, you mentioned some of the projects. Were there anything that stands out of kind of your projects or your internships there that are kind of memorable for you? Yeah, you know, um, so one of my, one of the neat things that I did there was um, for, was uh, map out all the northern um, Willamette Valley AVAs. So I, I um, took the topos, the georeferenced topos, and literally tr took the TTB descriptions of the AVAs and traced them out uh, line by line, and um, and and we actually published those like onto the public. So that so a lot of the I think that they've been remapped a fair bit since then, but but are not remapped, but just several different people have done it. But the first iterations of those were, were my work, which was kind of cool to see. You know, Greg just like put them out to, on the public, you know, um, open source. And so a lot of those early maps um, of the AVAs were mine. The other, the other uh, big project that I was involved with was, um, and this was the majority of what, what I did there aside from my coursework, was um, at that point in time, <clears throat> we had a new uh, climate data set that was being uh, released called the PRISM data set. And um, it was a new 30-year climate normal for the entire Western United States that the data had just been compiled and put together. And so we had, we, uh, Greg was involved, you know, is well connected in that community, and and so he had um, brought the data in and basically sat me down and said, "We're going to process all this, and we're going to um, write a paper." And the idea was that um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Winkler model for climate modeling, or the Winkler like uh, Winkler and UC Davis back in the '50s um, basically took climate normals from some of the major growing regions and classified them into five different growing regions. And so we would be a, a region one, you know, a place like Napa Sonoma would be region two and three, I think, if, if I remember. And then places like the Central Valley in California that were really warm were like that four and five. And so there was kind of broad generalizations as to like which varieties fit into those climate regions and it was kind of like a bible you know like it was one of the big factors for uh, Charles Corey and David Lett coming up here um, you know they looked at, at these Winkler models and said it's too warm for Pinot Noir in California so um, and so but that information was was you know uh, 60 years old at that time or so and so um, with this new data set coming out and a lot of these AVAs now mapped out. Um, we basically were going to redefine the growing regions based on this new data set. But that that you didn't just click a button and like look at that at that point in time. We actually had to actually bring in these massive uh, data sets, and that was my job. I was the um, what do you call it? The computer lab guy aid the geography computer lab guy and so i had like four computers that i had processing data that no one was allowed to touch in the back corner you know and so we had these things running 24 hours a day for like two years 
and um, we'd process the data, and then we'd went in and, and um, took the shape files for the individual uh, um, AVAs throughout, the, you know, the West Coast, and we basically like re like did a re a big reassessment of that and. Um, yeah, obviously Greg worked with a few different other people on that, um, but that was actually we that was ended up the paper that came from that was published in the ASCV Journal, and I was one of the authors of it. So that was a major something really unique that I got to be involved in in that situation, and something that's still I mean it's I think it's the most referenced paper of the ASCV Journal in, in its history. I think I'd have to fact check that with Greg. He'll, he'll smack me on the on the hand if I if I told a story there, but but uh, but yeah, no. So that was a really great experience, and and uh, yeah, and I got to know some of the growers down there in my time down there um, because my dad was involved, you know, in the nursery business. He was, you know, he's selling a lot of vines down there, and so <clears throat> I had connections with some of the growers in that way, and was able to. Um, you know, kind of further those connections. And I mean, funny enough, now at A to Z, those people are now some of my biggest suppliers. So our connections, the connections are really strengthen even more because of that history that I have with that region. So after, after graduating from SOU, what, was your next, what were your plans? Well, uh, I, was, I had some interest in, in um, continuing, continuing, continuing edu education. Um, so I, uh, I went down and took a big, kind of a big loop of a trip through California, um, looking at, uh, looking into grad school. So I did, I went to Davis and one of the professors there told me I wasn't a good fit and that I should go to Fresno, which was kind of funny, but, uh, and, and I went and visited, um, Cal Poly, Keith Patterson there, and had a really nice conversation with him. And then, um, but didn't really see, Cal Poly didn't really have a, a big master's program. He kind of said he would make something up for me if, if he wanted, but, but um, and then I went to Fresno State and I had a, a really, really great conversation with um, Robert Wample, who was a WSU guy who I, was familiar with and some papers that he wrote, um, and I, that was a great experience for me. He he sat down with me for probably two hours, talking about different things and and um, uh, really uh, great. Just a you know just took a took a mentorship role right off the bat, which I really appreciated. You know, it was a long drive for me to go down there, and, and he basically told me. Um, because at that point, you know, with the connections that I had um, through people we already worked with, um, there was obviously opportunities to go work internships internationally. And so I was already working, you know, working on that as far as like um, exploring options for, for visiting other places. And um, so he basically said, well, you know, you don't, you don't have to, I don't know if a master's would be a, the right thing for you, why don't you go and go travel and work? And if you feel like you want to come back to the university, 
let us know, and <clears throat> and we'll we'd be, we'd love to have you. So um, that was a great kind of a like I say like a just a blip of a kind of a mentor, kind of somebody pushing me back out of of that world, and um, yeah, and that's kind of I didn't I didn't go back after that, uh, but uh, yeah. So so after that I. Um, Let's see. Uh, that was that was when I went to work at Etude Winery. Uh, that summer was uh, 06, and um, I worked with a woman there named uh, Francie Dwyer, who's uh, was a viticulturist there at Etude, and I worked with her for two seasons, which was a great experience. She's just a exemplary viticulturist and a great professional, um, and then. Uh, in between those two trips, I went to work in um, down in New Zealand on the South Island with a place called Felton Road, which is a pretty well-known Pinot Noir producer from down there. And that was a great experience, um, kind of just in the really the middle of nowhere. But, you know, people doing great work, but, you know, hours from anything. Um, yeah, and then uh, on that, you know, that was a really interesting trip because, um, you know, there was, I think at one point, we had 12 different nationalities working on our, on our field crew, just out pulling leaves and moving wires and thinning fruit. Um, so that was pretty unique kind of a situation. Uh, but in that, on that trip, I got to know a few different um, folks in Europe from, you know, people who are um, doing uh, internships um, away from their family estates. And so I just told them, hey, I'm going to come to see you next year. And and so um, that was, uh, yeah, the, my second internship at Etude was in uh, 06. No, in 07, excuse me. And then... Um, in 08, I went over and worked in Europe for with some of those guys and with some friends we have in Switzerland. Um, yeah, and after that, I basically came home and I got I kind of got sick of the intern thing, the whole travel around and just talking. There's a lot of talking, and it's like, let's go go do something, you know. So yeah, but it was a great experience, and you know, those friendships that I made in that time, I still carry to this day, you know. So obviously that's a, that's a lot of different places, a lot of different sort of styles and, and terroirs and everything to see in a pretty short amount of time. So tell me about uh, sort of what did you learn in those times? Were there, were there things you were excited to try, things you were excited to do again or, or to, to kind of bring home with you? Oh man, that's, there's a lot to get into there. Um, yeah, I mean, like I was telling you about this, my own place here, um, you know, before 2006, I had basically worked with three varieties, four varieties. Um, and, you know, just, just knowing the differences of, of the way that those performed in different soils and different situations. Yeah, no, so that was, so going in, uh, at Etude, we had, um, <clears throat> obviously the focus was on Pinot Noir, and so um, 
had some exposure to some great sites down there um, for that. Uh, they had a um, kind of the main vineyard they sourced from was called the Benoit Vineyard over in the Petaluma Gap on the Sonoma side of Carneros. And so um, saw, you know, got to know the, the grower down there um, and, and see all the things that he was doing for, you know, really, really high-end Pinot Noir. Um, and uh, got to know uh, some people from the Hyde family, uh, which are right smack dab in the, on the kind of the, the boundary between Napa and Sonoma. Uh, Lee Hudson as well. We got some grapes from Lee Hudson. And so I got to spend a little bit of time talking with him about what he was doing. And, and, um, but the real op eye opener for me was, um, getting to work in some of those up Valley vineyards because now, uh, Etude also had a really pretty, uh, pretty high octane Cabernet program. You know, that was Tony's background. Uh, in the kind of the middle to early 80s or early to middle 80s uh, was working with, um, you know, stuff on Nebaum Lane, uh, Gary Morisoli, um, Rutherford Bench, Vine Hill Ranch. Uh, he worked and then um, up in Calistoga um, was kind of my favorite little pocket of that whole experience. Um, we worked with the Frediani family and the Frediani's have been growing grapes <clears throat> on the same farm down there since the 18, I think 1880s. Um, and so I got to know them. Um, and then their cousins, the Lavisis. Don Lavisi was, uh, was a, uh, I think an extension agent in the Central Valley. And so everybody in California great business knew uh, Don Lavisi. Um, and so, you know, in, in those vineyards, they had obviously replanted a bunch of uh, their acreage um, into Cabernet production for high-end stuff. And um, they had experimented with some different sprawl systems, which was really interesting, different rootstocks. They have this whole, this, this line of, of, of a planting that had three different rootstocks where you could really see that influence on the growth of the vines. Um, they had some stuff that Tony convinced to, them to plant down at six foot, you know, six foot really tighter spacing. Um, but they also had these older plantings of, uh, Petite Syrah, Carignan, um, Val de Gay, all these, uh, Zinfandel, they had Zinfandel up there that was over a hundred years old. Um, and that all went into this other label that Etude was, was doing at that time called Fortitude. And so that was just, that was such a mind blowing experience for me um, to uh, get to know kind of those deep generational farmers up there and in, the, in that, you know, up valley area. Um, but also just to see, um, you know, they, they called the Zinfandel vines ankle biters because they were all about this tall and they were all about this big around. They, you know, they didn't make barely any grapes, but, but they're a hundred years old, you know, and they had Carignan that was, you know, six or seven feet tall in a vertical cordon system. They had, um, 
Nebbiola. They had all kinds of stuff. They had, and it was all, it was just such an amazing experience. Just from a, like a trellis, from a viticulture, from literally like the, the meaning of the word, it was like a museum up there. And the brush rows were full of equipment, you know, from horse-drawn stuff to like, you know what I mean? And it was just like, I was just like, this is my, these are my people, you know? And, and um, so that was a really eye-opening experience and very gratifying for me is to open my mind to um, just the different ways of doing the work. And I think that that's the biggest takeaway I have from all those travels is that um, just to realize there's no one way of doing it. And, you know, when you're 18 or 20 years old or, or and you're working for a big, famous name place in Oregon, you think, well, we know how to do it, you know? And, and um, the reality is that um, there's just a lot of other ways to do it. And, and the wines are fantastic, you know? And that's the other kind of big, <clears throat> you know, uh, moment I had or moments or, or series of, of kind of experiences I had in that, in that time was that was getting to have an understanding of what that idea of terroir meant. And, and it usually means it's just what's from that parcel, right? It's not, you know, there's no blending. There's no, the influence of the, of the winemaker and the, you know, the, the chemist, there's just, you know, in those really pure bottlings, there's none of that. There's, there's just the funky system. Usually they were field blends, sometimes of varieties, but certainly of clones, you know, and that's, I mean, in Burgundy, I'm, I'm blown away because we were all about clones in the light, late nineties in Oregon. We had all the, the new Dijon clones come in and it was like the next hot thing. And, and, you know, there's something to be said about tasting different lots of cl different clones and to know what they're, what they are in the blend. And so I, you know, going to Burgundy, you're like, Oh, well, what, you know, what clones are you guys doing? And they're like, we don't know. Or maybe they do know, but they don't tell you, uh, you know, cause they do, but they won't tell you. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was like a really fun, you know, thing to kind of experience and to realize, um, yeah, and, and some of the neatest places I got to work were were kind of funky. You know, there were these places where you couldn't get with a tractor, so everything had to be done by hand. And uh, and there was, but it was a big enough little terrace to take in and put into a couple barrels, so you got to taste what came from that little terrace. And and you're like, wow, that's the one I want to take home. You know, um, so I think that was that range of experiences really opened me up to like just kind of, you know, the full, the full, having the full view of, of, uh, what viticulture really is and what, you know, what that interaction between a, the vineyard and the cellar can be. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and to, to be honest too, it's, it's also, you know, that was a time when I got to first see Pinot Noir being mechanically harvested, <laughs> you know, and, and got to talk, you know, everybody was looking into mechanization at that point. 
And so it wasn't just the little handwork, small bottling things. At the same time, I was experiencing some really large scale, you know, um, really also very um, intentional work, but in on a larger scale and on a, you know, something that was being more or less mass produced. So. So after all these experiences, you mentioned you wanted to be back home. And so tell me about, about coming back home and what you were kind of looking to do when you got here. Uh, yeah, so that, at that point in time, um, the, my dad's vineyard management company had really expanded. Um, I think we were farming around maybe like 350 acres at that point. Um, and he had just purchased uh, a mechanical harvester. And so um, we were, I was just really excited to get back to work with that and see what the possibilities were, um, you know, in that realm. At that point we had really, um, we had just planted uh, our home place uh, into grapes. We had started doing some trellis experiments on about an acre, acre plot um, in right around 2000. And so we had been working on that for about seven years. And we kind of had settled on as far as this vine spacing and row spacing and trellis, how we thought we should set it up. We did our first kind of large planting of that at that time. Um, and so there was just a lot of we were kind of pushing some of the boundaries. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, things had really accelerated, you know, um, from the Oregon industry standpoint. So there was a lot of new interest and a lot of new projects. And um, in the first five years, we were, uh, I was back. Um, we took over the Highland Vineyard, the farming of that. That was, had been purchased by, uh, Laurent Montelieu and, and they asked us to kind of come back and revamp that place. It had kind of um, needed some love. So uh, uh, we, we were doing that as well as, you know, some really big projects, still Domain Serene and working with Tony Soder and Len Penner-Ash. So just a lot of really high caliber people. Um, and yeah, we did a big expansion out of Highland and planted a few other kind of mid-sized projects for different folks. And so, um, yeah. And then my dad also has his label Siltstone, which, which um, you know, after working abroad, you kind of couldn't avoid uh, the seller. You know, you had to, especially in Europe, you, you, um, you don't just work in the vineyard. You go back and learn how to work on a bottling line and how to clean tanks and, you know, move hoses and do pumps and all that stuff. And, and so I had gotten enough experience to feel comfortable with that. And so, um, so yeah, we, we kind of, uh, there was that kind of aspect of it too, like, um, you know, working in our own little winery in Carlton and yeah. So just like the really a big wide range of experiences to come back into and, um, come to work on so with the projects that you were being like like Highland or uh, etc that you were being was uh, was the demand for something new or was the demand because of based on what you what 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 your dad and, and the company had already had already been doing it was the experience it was just we had a great 
crew of people, um, high detailed work. We were always very cost conscious, so I think we were competitive as far as like um, offering ways to stabilize costs, you know, using machines. And we were willing to uh, invest money into um, into that for our clients, which I, which was, you know, I think people saw as a benefit. You know, they were looking to, um, you know, at that point in time, I think it was, you know, people were kind of selling 50 and $60 bottles, but they weren't selling 70 or 80 or $100 bottles. And so, um, you know, you wanted to watch your costs and make sure your grapes didn't cost six or $8,000 a ton because you're just throwing money at the wall. And um, so I think that that was... Um, that was a big part of, of what we were doing, um, you know, just being buttoned up, just having a professional operation that that we said what we were going to do. And we at harvest time, especially, you know, that's the crucial the crucial time. We kind of um, we knew how to get it done. We knew how to work with each different winemaker. That's the funny. You know, it was I think we were working with, I don't know, 35 different winemakers at that point in time and each one has their own special program and all their own mm -hmm. persnickety needs and 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 that you know uh, I was happy to fill in that role you know my dad was very much he was busy still with the nursery business and and uh, you know just running the company so I was became kind of the viticulturist role kind of working with the wineries but also heavily involved back with making sure everything was happening as it should um, with the vineyard management and all that stuff. So when it comes time, when it comes to making that many winemakers happy, especially when all the work is sort of happening at once, how did you go about sort of making sure that happened? Well, you know, that's where a lot of my, um, the geographical, uh, the mapping stuff came mm -hmm. in. Like I, I had a lot of work with spreadsheets and databases uh, in school and you know, maps are a great tool for communication because, you know, as long as people, uh, as long as you make them legible first off and, and make, you know, that's part of the challenge of map making is knowing what you're trying to portray. Um, so you could make a plan with a winemaker or with 12 different winemakers. Like Highland was a great example where it's like, you've got 12 rows of this for somebody and 12 rows of this for somebody else. And you know, that place was cut up into ribbons of, mm -hmm. of different winemakers. And each each uh, one had a different program they wanted for leafing or for thinning or all that stuff. So, <clears throat> you know, to be able to have a representation that both a winemaker and an owner can understand and uh, people on the working in the field can understand, um, you know, that was a, a, a great kind of skill that I brought to the table that I think made things run a lot smoother. Yeah, and then we, you know, we found ways of, you know, just, I don't want to say innovative ways, because everybody has their own different way to do it, but, you know, everything was marked. That was, you know, the attention to detail, where, like, every row was, not every row, but, like, all of the blocks in our company were marked, so that nobody, there was no question as to what <laughs> needed to happen where. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Highland was another great kind of a place that was, um, 
very interesting from a almost like a museum kind of a standpoint. You know, that place has was planted in the early 70s and so they kind of started out with that real wide mm -hmm. 10 foot spacing and they actually have some rows that were 10 by 10 that had some really creative uh, pruning to fill the wires. Um, there was some Geneva double curtain out there which is a uh, Nelson Solace uh, from New York his design of a split canopy. Um, we had some Scott Henry out there. Um, yeah so just a really you know, you could kind of follow through all the way through the 80s and into the 90s. And then we did, we did I think, about 75 acres of planting out there in, in 2000, oh man, 11, hmm. 2010, 2011. So, you know, we used the posts that we liked and the spacing that we worked with Laurent to find and the clones that we liked. And so it was kind of cool to add on to a place like that has so much history um, but yeah just a lot of fun too just to to be a part of and to you know taking all those things into account when you're trying to farm it for mm -hmm. for a bunch of different people is a big challenge a lot of variables yeah tell me about the what you were seeing what was changing in Oregon viticulture that time what were, were people's demands changing or people's sort of what they asked of you was it starting to change well, I think that was, you know, um, obviously, uh, you know, thing, everything's always getting more expensive. And so I think that, um, you know, in a place like Northwest Wine Company has a lot of different clients and a lot of different, uh, you know, pathways for their wine to go into. And so, um, uh and, and other growers too, you know, like if you're, if you're going to make a bottle for 30 bucks, you might want to try to be more cost sensitive to, to versus something that you know is going to be, be sold for a really high price. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, just looking back at what processes, you know, what do we need to do by hand versus what can a machine do most of, um, you know, and that's, I think when there was, you know, in that period of time, there were some really major improvements being made on uh, grape harvester technology, uh, but also just really refining some of the other, um, refining but also borrowing ideas from other wine growing regions um, on ways to uh, improve, you know, what you're doing with machines and mm -hmm. what you're doing by hand. Especially the harvester technology. I mean, it's the... You know, the I did some studies, or did a kind of a. Uh, we did we did this project where we went and sampled um, different grape processing uh, tools. We sampled three different uh, destemmers in the winery and two different harvesters, I think, or maybe even three. I don't remember. And then we put them. You know, just took a gallon bag and froze them, and then in the wintertime, went and poured them on a pan and separated this many whole berries versus this many exposed seeds and you know just and and it was amazing the you know the harvesters were like three times as good as as most of the destemmers and so we kind of put that together and made a little you know and showed it to our clients and said hey like this is something 
this isn't soup. We're not doing the soup thing here. We're doing really good work. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, something like that, where a winemaker wants to do, you know, a partial whole cluster. Mm -hmm. You know, they put two or three tons in there and then put another eight tons of machine harvested fruit into that into that fermenter, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that just kind of opening up, you know, high-end wine into some of those mechanical processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 like figuring out, okay, we don't need to position every single shoot exactly straight up. Like, there's there's no difference between that from a qualitative standpoint in the wine. There's no difference between that and just having decent a well-managed canopy, you know, and your fruit zone especially, you know, that was a thing where I, th that I really got to kind of focus in on is that, yeah, like, especially if it's, if it's, you're really looking for a really high quality, yeah, you need perfect fruit exposure. That means grapes shouldn't be laying on top of each other, you know, you shouldn't have a lot of variability in the, how your canopy is shading in the fruit zone. Um, you know, and that's, there's plenty of research too there to to like to for guidance, you know, as to how that should be. Um, but also kind of finding the boundaries as to like, well, you can do ninety percent of that with a machine. Mm -hmm. So maybe we don't need to leaf pull everything by hand, you know. So I think that was, yeah, in that period of time, that was. And really, since then, uh, that's really the way that our industry has accelerated, I feel. It's like really much more professional kind of, um, you know, taking a much more professional approach to, to making those decisions. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as organs expands, you know, we need more people to experience organ wine and that means you're, you know, you got to get further and further down the line as far as like, what, what's the bottle price? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. So tell me about the some of the uh, groups you've been affiliated with, both research group and like technical viticulture technical group and OW research funding committee, etc. Tell me about sort of your being part of the industry at a larger level and what, you, what you've contributed and sort of taken away from, from that level? Yeah, um, well, I, you know, um, the experience that I gained from traveling, the experience I gained from working with really, you know, very high-level winemakers, um, you know, you're able to glean a lot of information that may be anecdotal, but you're actually, you can actually just say, well, this this is understood now. We don't need to bicker about some of this stuff anymore. And so, um, which is gratifying, you know. And so, um, Patty Skinkus, she came to um, Oregon in 2007. And so, um, you know, I've known her since she, since she came here. Mm -hmm. I, we kind of came back almost at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, conversations with her, uh, you know, I developed through those organizations. I developed really good relationships with with the folks at OSU, but also at the USDA mm -hmm. um, there in Corvallis. And so, um, you know, as long as you can have a 
a logical, reasonable conversation with somebody, uh, you know, you can they appreciate your input. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's been my role is to is to kind of be an advisor to them from a practical standpoint, from mm -hmm. just just like here's what is important to us. Here's and and not just not just the most expensive high end, you know, unlimited resources situation. Like we're we're trying to keep this a long term uh, industry, right? And so that that's not always, um, you know, we have to figure out ways to do this smarter mm -hmm. and 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 um, you know, and, and some of that's just understanding. For example. Um, Patty just finished up a crop load study, mm -hmm. right? That was, that was a lot of participants in that. We learned a lot from that. Um, you know, that's that's a transformative kind of a project um, that you know I helped her. We helped her put it together we as a family, and and um, and that was you know if if every grower in the state can get twenty percent more fruit. Um, for the same cost, and there's no problem with quality, like, mm -hmm. who, who lost? Nobody. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, also Paul Schreiner, his, the stuff that he's done with, with nutrition, um, that's really been transformative as far as, like, here's what we've seen work. Here's our understanding of, of soil health and vine health and vine balance and he's helped us understand that in the numbers you know because you could get I mean part of the problem when I when I first got back here was you'd sit down in these in a room with 30 other people and you couldn't even agree if it had been a wet spring or a dry spring or if you know but there's such variability different sites different uh, you know mesoclimates different situations that people are dealing with everybody has a different impression and we didn't we weren't speaking the same language as far as like um, especially when you get into some of the the weeds with nutrition and with with what is vine balance what is crop load you know it's just you have to start to define the parameters before you can even have a, before you can have a really comprehensive mm -hmm. conversation about mm -hmm. those things and so that's where I feel like you know, I've worked really hard with them to help guide the conversation and, you know, just to kind of move us ahead. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you go to A to Z? So, yeah, I started at there in 2018. Um, yeah, my dad had kind of changed direction with some of the stuff with his business and and um, he was always encouraging me, you know, he'd send me a post from winejobs.com. Oh, you should go, <laughs> you should go work there, you know. And so we always had the, a really good, you know, very positive relationship as far as like, um, you know, our, uh, career opportunities mm -hmm. and, and, and really kind of a worldview of like, of, um, you know, what's out there and, and what's happening in the world. And so um, there was kind of this unique opportunity to work uh, with A to Z. And I, I was uh, 
kind of pals with Michael Davies from some of these technical groups, and and I really appreciated him and his wife Anna, and um, yeah, and so this was a huge opportunity. Uh, like I said before, I knew uh, already um, quite a few of their sources and kind of was familiar with their program. Uh, Ryan Collins, who was um, uh, kind of had my position uh, in the past, was a good friend of mine. He was another person in those uh, technical groups hmm. who who um, really helped to kind of guide that conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so I was already familiar with, you know, these. this is a pragmatic group. These are good people. And um, obviously, like had a great trajectory at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and the Rexhill properties, obviously those are, you know, Rexhill is, is, uh, has been one of the, was, is a kind of a heritage brand and, mm -hmm. and has always had a really good standing um, in the industry. I worked with Lynn Penner Ash for a lot of years too, so she, and she was a Rexhill. Mm -hmm graft off or whatever <laughs> you call that so so um uh yeah so it was yeah and and since then it's been a i've been there five years now and, and it's been a really positive experience and um great people and you know it's been neat too because some of we've been able to apply a lot of these these ideas that we've developed you know in in some of these really high-end vineyards and bring some of those ideas to some of the more production-minded folks that um, that are the sources for A to Z. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and again, it's, it's it's the same situation where you know establishing a common language mm -hmm. that we can both understand what we're looking at and and call it the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and be able to offer metrics and parameters and 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 you know, have experience with a lot of different problems that maybe that people have never seen before. Mm -hmm. I mean, grape growers are really insular people. I, I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> but they're very I have noticed. much, you know, you go into a vineyard and, and, and somebody's like, this is, I'm the only one who has this problem. You know, I just told you that on the before. I was like, I'm the only one who's got this bug. <laughs> And I'm sure I'm not the only one, but but I you know I was the first one to have the identified bug. So when you understand that, and you know it's it, I have an advantage, right? Because okay. I can say, yeah, this is this is a very unique problem. Um, here's a solution you might try. Here's a machine that might do part of that job. Mm -hmm. There's you know here's a way to adjust your chemistry or mm -hmm. your your fungicide program to address that issue, you know. Um, so I think that that's, you know, and and once you get gain their trust, they're willing to talk to you. you some of them you save them a big pile of money, and then they really love to see you come back. <laughs> you know, you give them a solution to a problem that they <coughs> that they have, and and uh, you really can bend their ear after that, and and um, yeah, so it's. It's been a great, great experience for sure. How does your, how did your role change going from working with your dad and for that kind of company to working at A to Z? How do your, how does your kind of your grower relationship change, and how does your sort of day to day, week to week role change? Uh, it's definitely more, you know, administrative, which was good. You know, 
farming every day is pretty hard on your body, you know, it's kind of beats you up and, and so, um, and I've had some injuries and stuff in the past that, that make it more difficult for me to do that, grind it out every day. Mm -hmm. So I was happy to kind of shift into more of a role where I can use my brain and not, you know, be bent over all day long. Um, you know, and obviously I have, I can get all that out of my own place here. Um, yeah, and, and it's a lot more travel. Like, I, I do travel a lot. We, we source grapes from nearly every growing region in the state and kind of actively expanding. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a lot more time in the car or truck and hotels or whatever. But again, it's, it's um, in, in a lot of ways, I don't feel like that's a, a burden, especially because I, I count a lot of these growers as my friends. I still have family in Southern Oregon, so I can mm -hmm. not always staying, uh, you know, in a hotel. And a lot of times I'm with my aunt and uncle or and their family. And um, yeah, and I appreciate. I really uh, enjoy. Yeah, when you know, a vast majority of the relationships I have with my A to Z growers are people who I just enjoy working with, mm -hmm. and they're. They're out to do the right thing, and they're doing really good work, and, and we're having great success together. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the fun stuff. You mentioned, uh, obviously, expansion. It is has obviously grown quite a bit. Um, as that expansion happens, how much of what you're doing is sort of seeking new vineyards or, or, or finding new partners, and, and how much of it is, is sort of existing relationships? Um, it's, you know... Um, it's a, it's a little bit of both, you know, it's, it's, especially this right now, you know, the past three years, we've had a lot of, we've had double digit growth at A to Z. And so, um, and the industry or the Oregon industry is still relatively small on the West coast. Um, you know, we have big neighbors to the North and South. Um, and so if you do want to grow, you have, there has to be new plantings. Mm -hmm. There's just nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. We're already working with, you know, almost all of the largest growers in the state and we're competing with other brands and other, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's lots of new interest. There's lots of uh, competition from California. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not easy to grow mm -hmm. when there's just not that much, there's not enough planted in the state. Um, so, yeah, and then you know the relationships that we do have are, are major uh, sources or growers. You can't lose those either because you need to, you know, you have to keep those, mm -hmm. keep your base mm -hmm. to continue to grow. And I, I think actually it's a um, some of the smaller, uh, um, smaller sites that we work with. I think they actually lend a really great verve to the A to Z program. I think that's maybe they're not the greatest fit for price or for um, logistics. You know, it's like 30 tons of hand-picked fruit. It's like not that attractive to me, actually. But um, but it's a great grower. It's a great site. Mm -hmm. And it adds something special to the A to Z blend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not all just tractor farm 
high production stuff. Mm-hmm. It's and, and and I shouldn't even classify some of our largest growers. They have an attention to detail that's that's exact. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know inches and ounces. It's it's so that doesn't change based on your scale. It just you know your considerations are a little different. Mm-hmm. So. So obviously, before we sat down for the interview, you gave us a nice little tour of, of your vineyard here. Tell us about this site, uh, what you've done with it, and sure. uh, and what's what's going on here. Yeah, so this is uh, my White Cloud Vineyard. It's it's um, kind of a, a iteration, kind of the final iteration of my my uh, interest or curiosity into trellis design. Um, so this it's a it's a head trained vineyard that's um, trained on an eight-foot diamond. It was like what you'd call it from an orchard standpoint. Um, and so, and it's a um, head-trained cane prune, so it's something you um, mostly see in the uh, the Mosul or the Saar, or some parts of Switzerland prune it this way, where there's a single stake, um, you have a trunk, and you tie a cane or two canes back to the stake. Um, uh, and that's where your all your fruit comes from is from that you know that fruiting zone that's kind of in a large circles. Um, my addition to it was um, I hung a wire hoop at the top of the the um, at the top of the post, and the function of that is to give some of the shoots something to grab onto, mm-hmm. like that helps to some of the shoots to go in a vertical way, but also that gives me a place to tuck. Um, the shoots that I want to keep for next year's fruiting canes, I have a place where I can wrap them up and keep them from getting torn off. Um, so this is kind of a, uh, yeah, like kind of going down the path of, of curiosity. And, you know, the, the base of the word research is research, like look again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so um, looking into trellis designs, right, reading all the sunlight into wine and Richard Smart. Like, I, I actually got to spend some time just hanging out with Richard Smart um, and, pick, you know, just get him off track. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and like I was talking about our friend Werner Koblet, like, I've had some really uh, fantastic experiences to work with viticulturists and winemakers who have that generational knowledge, right? And so I have a keen interest in the history of viticulture. And it started to spill into, like, out of, like, the 20th century, right? I started to look into, like, okay, well, how far back do you go? Like, mm-hmm. when you go to Burgundy, like, pull that one apart. You know what I mean? Um, why do they do things the way they do? Why do we have people from Burgundy here doing it the Burgundy way? Um, and so, <clears throat> looking into some of this research, I got even back into the to Greeks and the Romans, like what's left over from what they what they were doing. And there's actually some a fair bit of information mm-hmm. down to like tons per acre. And this is when you do this work, and this is when you pull leaves, and this is when you thin fruit. And so, um, digging that far back, it just kind of. Exp- continued to expand my thinking about that Mm -hmm. and it got to the point where yeah you just can't 
convince someone else to do some of this stuff right? <laughs> on, with their money. Um, and even even with our with the trail system I worked on with my dad, which is a very basic sprawl, something that's common in Napa Valley and you know other parts Lodi. Uh, but people up here just look at you cross-eyed and you start, you're like, yeah, it's different, but it's the same, you know, it's, there's nothing, it's not, there's no smoke or mirrors here, it's just very simple, actually, and um, so I got really curious about, like, <laughs> going off even further into the weeds and, like, okay, well, if I was, was going to do this, like, with the Romans, like, how would I do it, mm -hmm. and um, so this is actually planted in that with kind of borrowed ideas from that to where um, it's planted on the quincunx. You know what that is? It's like the number five on a dice. So it's a it's basically a square turned into a diamond, right? And so if you um, and I actually oriented my house in the same way as the vines. Uh, this is we're facing directly um, to the south east from here. So if you stand in the middle you know the the middle dot on the number on the five of the dice you're or no if you stand in the middle of the two like this way is east west mm -hmm. this way is north south mm -hmm. so no vine shades the other one right um, and so I just thought the brilliance of that like that's how the Romans planted it the brilliance of that is amazing like from a from a physiological standpoint um, you know these things are ultimately sun-catching uh, organisms. And so the fact, and that's one of the things I learned too from looking into research. Uh, Cesar Intrieri from Italy, he planted a, a vineyard in a star shape. And he did it in a VSP with all the, mm -hmm. you know, everything up in the wires. And he did it on a sprawl. And he sampled all those grapes in the star. And um, he figured out that, yeah, when a sprawl, it didn't matter. With the VSP, it was all about row direction. Because if you think about a wall of leaves oriented north-south, half the leaves are work half the day, half the leaves work the other half of the day. It's actually extremely inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really, I think that's one of the huge benefits of the sprawl system is that you, your leaves are smaller, you have more efficient, it's a more efficient physiological organism. And so, um, and I, this is kind of a step beyond that to where it's, it's uh, yeah, it's really uh, just allowing the plant to find its own balance and to catch the light as, as much as it can. Um, the other real interesting thing that I've learned from this is uh, this site is uh, marine sediment soil. It's a good and clay loam. So it's some of the oldest of the marine sediment soils in the valley. Um, be below this, so I think which would put it like, I don't know, 40 million years old. Um, directly below this is the marine basalts that you pretty much only find here on the coast range. Um, which are like 50 million years old. Um, and so this is a highly eroded, very shallow soil. Um, that being said, uh, with, and I found this with a lot of marine sediment soils, um, 
you have really high variability in your plant vigor because mm -hmm. of the differentiation in your soil depth and, and the way that um, marine sediment soils erode, you know, they're, they're striated, right? And so you kind of have these areas, you know, all your fractures are along this way as they, as they were um, deposited. And so what you'll see is the shallow parts get shallower and, and the deep parts get deep. Really wide vari variation in soil depth and vine vigor. And so <clears throat> what, this, what this pruning system allows is for the shallower areas with less vigor, um, you prune a short cane, just the same as you would a uh, normal vineyard. But the benefit is where you have pockets with higher vigor, deeper soil, whatever more, you know, some of that's just moisture, you know, the way the moisture moves through the ground, you have more moisture there. Um, it allows for um, almost unlimited number of buds for those more vigorous areas. So ultimately you get to this, you get the opportunity to give the vine a balance that you can't when it's restricted by your linear feet and your, your trellis design. And so that's, that's really, f that's the fun part. It's just like some of these vines just carry massive amounts of fruit and they're happy, you know? And when you look out at this in the summertime, you see very little variability in the um, leaf color and like in the fall time, all the vines hold their leaves more or less the same, you know, to where you go into a lot of other vineyards. And because they're not, they're not able to, or they're not, uh, their vines are kind of in this uh, out of balance, um, you'll see really massive vigorous areas um, that have huge thick canopies, big giant leaves. And then just, you know, 35 or 40 feet up the row, they're, they're little scraggly, scrawny plants. And the leaves fall off on the top and they stay on the bottom. And, and so it's, that's been really kind of the more interesting part of, of, of this place. Um, but again, I mean, it's kind of, I do, can't do anything with machines here. It's all, <laughs> it's all by hand. And, and uh, uh, luckily my wife, Catherine, she's, she's, keen to learn and she likes to, she likes working in the vineyard. So that's, that's been really nice for me. Uh, yeah. So, so overall it's, it's, it's a really fun, it's a fun, it's still, it's still fun. And the wine is, is really spectacular. It's really very different. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. What do you notice in the fruit? Yeah. So, so, um, one of the things we really focus on is exposing the fruit early, uh, to light. I mean, that has a lot of ramifications for disease control. Um, but also, um, there's some really clear research showing that you improve your tannin structure and improve your color. And so um, that's, uh, that's something that I, that I definitely see in the wine that results from the, these grapes is, is, um, is really good color, not necessarily really dark inky color, but more just, just that kind of deep red kind of ruby color and, and it stays. I mean, it's, you know, um, I think my first wines from here were 2015 and they're not that old. I mean, obviously it's only seven years old, but, but, um, 
the color and the structure. I mean, it has a, it, um, the tannins, it's a lot more kind of smooth tannins. Um, and I, I want to say kind of bigger, like a bigger tannin structure, but without being obtrusive. Um, and then as far as ripeness goes, I think that this site, it's right where it should be as far as, as far as sugar ripeness, you know, um, I don't necessarily look so much at sugars for ripeness. I'm much more of a skin condition for ripeness uh, person. I like to look at where the, you know, where they are in that, that process of abscission. Um, but, uh, you know, this, we're generally, I don't know, 100 to 105 days past bloom here. So it's not, <clears throat> it's not advancing, advancing ripening at all. I think that as far as the trellis goes, and it's not delaying it, which is, I think that's just about right. Uh, the site itself is not early and it's not late, so it's kind of right in the middle. Um, so, you know, it blooms a little later than the most early maybe five to seven days than the most, the earliest spots in the valley and um, harvests about the same. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, more than anything, and, and that, you know, we kind of follow through um, uh, as far as the vinification goes, it's pretty low intervention. Um, for the most part, we, we get uh, native ferment out of it. You know, we don't, I've had to, to, um, <clears throat> I've had to, to add yeast to a couple lots in the past, but only, I think one time just cause it, we, it was cold when, when we harvested them and they just didn't take off. Um, but generally we get a good, a good native ferment. Um, and the wine we work with Jay McDonald at EIEIO, who's my neighbor just down the road. Um, and so we have a really simpatico kind of approach to winemaking where, um, you know, it's, we've got good grapes, they've got good nutrition, they go through fermentation clean, um, it's very kind of low impact and, and uh, yeah, so we're really pleased with the wines. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, and that's kind of the fun part now is, is um, with my wife helping out, we're able to kind of push it through into into being a business and our our uh, yeah we're starting a small label narrow window wines, so that's uh, that's fun stuff and and um, yeah real small production I think it, at most it'll only be we have a little bit more stuff we could plant out here as far as open ground, so we might do some more. Um, probably a, a white variety, um, but uh, for now it'll probably stay in the 100 to 150 case range. So just enough. It's, it's kind of like a two-acre vineyard. It's just enough to be a complete pain in the ass. Um, but uh, but no, it's 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 fun, and it's yeah, and it's definitely allowed me to just continue to learn about what we're doing here that's and that's that's i think you know that's necessary for any for anybody you have to keep your curiosity and keep learning and and be open to to seeing things in a different way yeah and also you know accepting when it doesn't work 
you know, I, I started out this place really, you know, I, I worked in those vineyards in Calistoga and they had these beautiful goble vines, you know, and in Switzerland too. And uh, one of the things I was telling you before, but we haven't talked about is sap flow pruning, right? In Switzerland, you go to some of these old vineyards and every spur is just like a little spiral, right? And you can look at the sap flow in the plant and you, it, it's an uninterrupted cambium layer. You're just like, oh, that's just beautiful. And so that's what I wanted to do here. That's how I started out my vineyard. But, but um, what I found was I'd go and do all these very careful cuts and keep everything on the sap. And then when you're disbudding or shoot thinning, you know, you have to do the same thing. You're really pruning, but with your fingers. And uh, I do all that work. And then in June, we'd have a big storm come through and the wind blows and half of the shoots would get torn off. And what would happen then would then all that energy from those half of those shoots would push into the rest of the shoots and they would be so vigorous that they would blow the crop off. So you'd literally, I'd be sitting up there in one of these storms watching, you know, this vine over here, all the shoots fall off. This one over here, all the shoots fall off. And you just know, oh, I'm not going to get any fruit from that one, any fruit from that one. So I just was like, I have to, mm -hmm. this, I, I have to abandon this idea. It's, it's, it's finished. And luckily I was messing around too with some vertical cordons, which I still have some actually. And then also just like this, this cane pruning system mm -hmm. that I was familiar with. <clears throat> and so that's where I kind of settled back into the cane pruning system. And it's for whatever reason, like I still have some breakage, but, but I just am able to leave some more, I leave extra shoots mm -hmm. and then the wind thins and forms, you know, and we make sure to do, uh, you know, really intensive inter inner canopy work. We pull mm -hmm. a lot of leaves and make sure the environment looks good pretty much all year. Um, and yeah, good exposure. Yeah. Good ripe fruit. The balance finds. I mean, it's it's one of the the, fun, the funnest things I think is just to see how yeah how you can actually get to a really amazing balance, but you have to give the vine what it wants, mm -hmm. the number of buds that it, it, it fits. So you mentioned narrow window, and obviously a, a, small, a small brand. What prompted you to to finally to start a small commercial brand? Well, I'd like to make some money for this place. Um, no, it's just, it's kind of the, um, the final kind of point of inflection, you know, like, um, it's one of the things that prompted my dad to get, to make wine hmm. is that at some point you get, you know, you're, you, you can't avoid, like if you're growing grapes and certainly that's true with people I work with at A to Z, like they Grape growers need to understand that this is not doesn't end when the bin leaves the field. Like if you're not considering the wine quality, then you shouldn't be in the business. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just <laughs> through absorption and, and sitting at dinner with people who make wine, you know, you, you start to learn things and you say, well, I, I kind of like that way versus that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, at some point you kind of have to say, well, I'm going to, you know, Get, get involved and just making wine is not that complicated, really. 
if the if the grapes are in good shape and and you can pay attention, um, you know it's it's uh, fairly you know there's some simple concepts to abide by to guide the fruit mm -hmm. into you know smaller and smaller vessels as Jay says, and that's all we do. You know, <laughs> you put it in the glass. That's the last one. That's the last <laughs> vessel that it goes into. Um, so that was you know it's kind of this overarching. Mm -hmm. kind of idea of, of engaging in the process all the way to the end and and it's gratifying you know that's one of the things that's you know the funnest part of working in the wine business is is dinner time you know you work a long day you put a you know exert a lot of effort and you get to enjoy this wonderful thing and you might even get to enjoy it you know 25 or 30 years from now and it's it's a piece of time you know put away mm -hmm. um so that's that's kind of fun to be a part of that, and yeah. You talked about some of the changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry in general. I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, uh, working A to Z, having your own vineyard, having the experience you have in, in Oregon, what comes next for the industry? What are what what is how is the industry going to change in the next decade? Oh, there's so many ways to go. There's so many exciting projects. Uh, working in Southern Oregon, you know, that's a place that has potential, um, and, and not just Southern Oregon, but up in Eastern Oregon in the Walla Walla, Milton Freewater area in the gorge. Um, we still have so much exploration to do as far as varieties, and each variety has, you know, its own, its own method for fermentation and aging and all that there's just such a wide range of of approaches that are equally um you know uh viable mm -hmm. and so um i think that that's super exciting and that's something that's never going to go away and something that's important for the future of oregon um but i also think that um you know in order to expand our bread and butter you know Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. I think we don't have enough Riesling in the state. I know for a fact, actually, <laughs> that we need more Riesling. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is another really promising variety that's that's underplanted. Um, but I think that uh, there's just, you know, one of the interesting things too, actually, about working in all those different areas, and especially in Europe, is. Some of those places where I worked, they've been growing grapes on the same slope for a thousand years, like more than that, and they're still doing it, and, there's, and it's still viable, and the wines are fantastic. So that's exciting because we have all the ingredients to do the same here, mm -hmm. and um, so, you know, and I think that that's you know, other uh, sectors of agriculture, other uh, nut growers or blueberry guys. I'm working with a few different blueberry guys who want to get into grapes, so they already kind of speak the language of growing berries. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it's, it's, it's past the point of, of having to prove itself, mm -hmm. our industry, having to prove itself to anybody and and uh so now we can go about our work mm -hmm. you know and so that means 
um, expanding maybe in the areas where we haven't planted in the past and discovering what what are the challenges and what are the benefits from that um, and like I say with the varietal with the varieties and the different cultivars how do those match into some of these areas where they have where they do have more heat accumulation and more you know different soils that might be more conducive to other varieties but I think that you know like I say the bread and butter is not going away and there's plenty of land uh, potential places to expand into um, and we just need to continue to to grow and grow in a you know in a smart way mm -hmm. and that's what I think um, I think the challenge will be just because the limitations of labor and costs and all those things are really front and center right now and so We'll see, you know, I think that that's one of the challenges I have at A to Z and talking to people who are thinking about planting grapes is like trying to kind of impress on them, well, we can't do it the, the same way as you see when you're driving around. It have to, if, especially if it's not going to, if you, you know, when you're establishing a region, you're not going to get 60 or 80 bucks a bottle for it. Like there's a lot of other ingredients that mm -hmm. need to be in place for that to happen. And so to kind of talk them off that cliff, you know, and then just say, well, let's, you know, but here's another approach where mm -hmm. you can still have excellent, excellent quality. You still can have the potential to discover that and work with people who, you know, go and get a winemaker who wants to make a few barrels and, and treat it on its own and do a little fermentation. Like, like, I think that there's, that's how you really, you know, get to the, get to the, into the thick of it mm -hmm. but in the meantime you know you have to partner with a company that's got a good reputation and then will pay the bills mm -hmm. so you can do it again next year mm -hmm. so you've talked about all the things you have going on obviously a to z your own vineyard you're starting your brand so what is next for you as you look ahead what are you uh excited to to do next projects goals on the horizon um i you know i i, I enjoy working at a to z a lot and, and i don't one of the other things my dad always told me is don't quit your day job. Um, and I, I think that that's true. I mean, I, I, um, the work I get to do here with Catherine and, and getting things in the bottle is, is fun, but, but um, it's too risky. I mean, honestly, that's a lot of what I do at A to Z is just, is just work on risk, risk assessment, risk assessment of business organizations, risk assessment of... of what's the weather forecast, mm -hmm. you know, what's, and that's one of the important things about A to Z is we are very geographically diverse. Mm -hmm. we, we purchase grapes from the entire state for a reason, not just because we need, a, we need them, mm -hmm. but because if we had a bad year in the Willamette Valley, we can lean on Umqua in Southern Oregon um, for quantity and for quality mm -hmm. and vice versa. All all those different factors and so um, I don't see that uh, that's going to continue to be a part of what I'm doing is is working with with big organizations like that and just continuing to kind of um, yeah I, I, I also really enjoy being part of the research community and being part of that um, kind of that cohort of people who are who are asking the tough questions and solving the tough problems. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's 
13 or 1400 different pathogens for grapes. So I see new things that I haven't seen before almost every year. And you, you know, and you have to admit that too. I don't know what the hell's going on here <laughs> at some point, but you can, but you know, you, you be methodical about it and, and um, you know, just try to get to the root of the problem. Uh, but I enjoy that. I mean, that's a big challenge. And, and I, but like I say, I, it, it, I'm inspired for the, for the whole region. Like to, I mean, and I love being a part of that kind of greater um, uh, movement or situation, you know, mm -hmm. just like to realize that, that we just have a lot of really good work to do here mm -hmm. and I want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and also just, you know, working with some of these new growing regions or new growers, uh, places that, you know, there may be 50 or 100 miles away from another vineyard, but the slopes just look perfect, you know, and you kind of got like a little bit of drool coming out of your mouth. <laughs> you say, oh, man, this, this looks so good. Let's do it, you know, and and uh, so that's fun. Yeah, that's really fun. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, and, you know, one of the things I like, too, about agency is that, you know, we're, it's very much attention to detail. It's just on a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. And so um, really pleased and proud of the wines that are coming out of there and, you know, get comments from people who are not in the wine industry. Oh, I, saw, I was in Hawaii and I had a bottle of A to Z or I was in Georgia or Nebraska. And so to be a part of that greater push mm -hmm. out into the world and into, into the into the market that's fun i mean it's and yeah our, we get some great scores for very affordable approachable wines mm -hmm. and and i i like to be a part of that mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, yeah and like i say i we have uh i we are it's our the wine we make is a pinot noir i think you i should also have a white mm -hmm. you usually have a white and a red right so um so that's <clears throat> We're still trying to figure that out, but uh, hopefully we can expand into that realm here with a little bit of open ground we do have. Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of just stay the course and, and continue to to refine what we're doing and, and continue to learn and, and um, yeah, stay involved, stay curious. Excellent. All the questions that I have for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like uh, to cover? No, I think that's uh, I think we more or less covered, covered it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your hospitality and for showing off this amazingly cool vineyard. I really appreciate you wanting to see it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.